welcome to The Soloist, an occasional podcast series about solo performance and solo performers. Hi, I'm Steve, Steve Greer, a writer and theatre academic, and in each episode I interview a different artist about their work. In this series, I'm interested in exploring how and why and where solo performance gets made. So, both the personal and the professional and the artistic, and I guess even lofty ambitions sometimes of work, as well as the more practical questions of how it actually gets commissioned, how it gets paid for, and where it gets shown. One of the things that I'm going to try and do with this series is capture some of the sheer variety in solo performance as it appears around the country and around the world, whether it's in work for theatres or in for comedy clubs or for galleries or music festivals. In this episode, I talk with performance artist F.K. Alexander, whose work has appeared around the world, but primarily in the UK and Europe. It's work that's kind of best characterised by really deceptively simple choices which really only reveal themselves as the work unfolds. But I'll kind of let FK speak for herself. One of the things that we talk about is a piece of work though called I Could Go On Singing Over the Rainbow, at the heart of which is a very simple ritual. FK sings Judy Garland's signature song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, over and over for individual members of the audience. And yet in doing so somehow conjures up something more than just what that simple description would imply. We start off, though, by talking about the task-based nature of some of her early work. Here's FK. There's pieces of work that I've made that have been um, specifically because I want to get rid of this thing. So when I um, got rid of my videotapes and when I got rid of my cuddly toys and when I got rid of my record collection, I wanted rid of those things. So did it start from the desire to get rid of those things or was that just uh, one of the driving factors in the work? I think there's a, there's a lot of times where um, I need to do something in my life and because a uh, blessing and a curse, um, I have an artist's mind or an artist's view, then... I have an opportunity to create something out of that destruction um, and it turns it into something that's not just putting something in the bin or putting something in a charity shop, which is kind of like, and uh, is not a kind of dramatic <laughs> action. Um, it might be like on a personal level, you know, but um, there's something about it as a shared witnessed thing that becomes more powerful, I suppose, for me anyway. Um, and just that thing of like, I, I have to do this. I have to get on with this, this task. Um, why don't I make it bigger than that, more meaningful, and, and allow that to be... Because the thing of burning all my cuddly toys, I know that each one of those toys, when I like pick it up and look in its little eyes and then I throw it in a fire... What was that piece called? Um, destroy Yourself. Is that... Is that I, I love the, the title of that is the implied invitation to the audience as much totally, as... Totally, totally. Well, that's what that's what kind of conversations were around those days when I was doing that, was that um, people... It was just really easy to understand. Like, what was I doing? It was really easy to understand that. Um, and... It was, yeah, those days were really interesting because all of those pieces started out as quite kind of ridiculous looking. Mm-hmm. Partly because I was dressed like... Marilyn Manson crossed with Willy Wonka crossed with Hello Kitty um, that they were quite ridiculous situations but it became really serious because it was it, it was even though I didn't like talk about things or explain things or there wasn't like a program note or whatever um, it was very clear that those were my real things 
you know, and then there was, you're going to sense from somebody, um, because there was items that, of course, held more significance for me than other ones. Um, so it wasn't just this kind of mechanical rote no, destruction? No, no, no. And I was, I was, I mean, the videotapes were more so because you can't really, they're all, they all look the same. So sometimes I would catch the name of a film and then I would remember, like, you know, I watched that 40 times when I was... But as physical object, objects, the... They all look the same, yeah. yeah. Um, but the records and the cuddly toys, you know, there was records that were my mum's and there was moments when I was doing it that I was like, oh my God, this is really harsh, maybe I... But maybe it's I, done. So there was no... No going back? No, no. Once you flip the switch, it's gone. Um, and that's what is kind of exciting about those kinds of moments because people come out and it's just happened to them. So, like, the records, that was the thing that people were like... I could hear people come out and be like, fuck's sake. Nah, man, nah. Like, no, not Morrissey, not more. you know. And, like, I don't know a bigger Morrissey fan in my life than me, but it's not Morrissey. It's a piece of plastic and a piece of paper. Do you know, like, the panda that when I picked it up and was like, oh my God, I have photographs of me and my mum, my me sitting on my mum's knee holding this panda and she gave it for me Christmas and she's dead and they're like burning the panda. But it's not, my my mum is not in that panda. That's highly flammable material that has been since outlawed. <laughs> That's what I'm actually holding in my hands. And... Um, but I was genuinely having like some pretty big emotions in that moment. But what's exciting is because again, it's like if I was just going down to the, my bins in the back of my building and throwing stuff out into the bin, there could be loads of moments where I'd be like, "Oh, I'll just hang on to it. I'll just hang on to it." When there's people watching it, you do it. Then that's the 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 contract of energy that is there in that moment is like, I have you know I've made the decision to do it, and actually, you guys watching me is gonna. Um, be like the propulsion to keep it going because maybe I could decide that I want to give in to sentimentality and you know sentimentality and nostalgia is like disease you know it's disease basically um, and I'm super guilty of it. You saying that Buzzcut knows you that comes out of a long relationship with them mm -hmm. or a couple of years relationship with them and working with uh, Nick Nick mm -hmm. as uh, an amplifier and mm -hmm. as a creative producer. What do you get out of that relationship? So you're primarily working or appearing in works as a soloist, as a mm -hmm. single figure. Talk to me about the the function of that kind of collaboration in your in your work. Because um... yeah, I mean, at the same time, even just on the kind of on the ground of the performance, you know, the piece of music that was in um, that piece of Buzzcut was by Lee Cummings, um, who um, is an artist. Um, a visual artist and a noise artist and we've collaborated on a lot of things including the Judy Garland show and um, it would be I, it would be almost impossible to do any of those works without the music that he makes um, I don't I, you know I would figure it out I would do something I feel if suddenly he was like no I don't want you to use my stuff then I would figure it out and that would be a different thing but um, even when I've like said to like other festivals or performances or whatever that I want someone else's name to be like there if they're physically not present 
then no one understands that it is a collaboration because there somebody's physically not there. So if I'm just the only person doing the action, then I'll always be seen as a solo artist. But Buzzcut, um, over time we just like built trust with each other, I guess. Um, I had I had been in a couple of other people's things before doing Destroy Yourself, which was my first solo piece at Buzzcut. Um, and that really was a solo piece. You know, I I I I had asked to use like Lean as track by Lee and a track by Sarah and stuff. Um, but I also used like eighties Matchbox Feeling Disaster and um, you know some other people um, for songs. But uh, they really let me figure out what I wanted to do um, and change what I wanted to do. So like the application wasn't exactly the same as what happened. To the most part, but um, because I think the work felt like a bit of a thing at the time, like people kind of connected to it. That I think for Buzzcut, they were like, you know, we we want to support this person because they're doing something maybe a bit different, um, and they, you know, they let me do weird stuff basically. <laughs> Um, so mostly it's just kind of the trust that collaborations built out of out of trust, and I go to them with ideas that I wouldn't go to other festivals with. For me, a lot of the development of my work is where can I imagine this going? Where can I imagine this going? The thing about Nick that's one of the many things that's um, incredible about Nick is that he has a really ambitious mind. So if I have um, an idea, then I'll talk to him about that. And then, you know, if he's out in the world somewhere and he travels more than me, but if he's out in the world, like I'll quite often get, you know, a picture of a building site in Chicago and he'll be like, oh, imagine if you're like doing this thing here. And so the collaboration there is that Nick again but this is the thing as well it's like if you have a really strong aesthetic and you have a really strong look and you have a really strong vibe then um, people see a place or see a thing and you know Nick will be like oh Eke really love that they can work out the resonance they can work out that yeah because like my tastes are really clear We've mentioned, the, the talked about, kind of alluded to the, the GD piece a few times which we should talk about directly so this started um, as a um, a piece at the arches, uh, durational work of something like five hours. five hours, yeah, and has since then been presented and adapted in a range of different kind of contexts mm-hmm. and forms. And it was at the Edinburgh Fringe last year as a kind of one-hour yeah. um, performance running for pretty much continually through the whole duration of the festival. <laughs> and then yeah. you've since done uh, longer and short versions of it again, yeah. And then you're going back to the festival again this year, yeah. yeah. Um, can you describe describe the work? What, what gives... Yeah, the, you know, describing the work is always... Uh, so but in terms of the process, it... maybe we just start with the sure, task. What's sure. the task of the work? The task of the work is that um, I want to be Judy Garland. <laughs> um, and she's dead, so uh, I can't be her. But um, I can occupy a kind of psychic space of her. So what I wanted to do was just like connect really, really deeply with people through the medium of Judy Garland and through the medium of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, it's an open one-to-one, so I'm singing somewhere over the rainbow to people while holding their hand and not breaking eye contact. Um, and I'm doing that for as long as we're in the space. So you repeat it, you repeat performance again and again for as many people want it yeah. in yeah. the time that's available to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the whole time, um, Okashima Island Tourist Association are playing a harsh noise wall uh, from before people come in to the end of the time. And that's always on. Um, and that's, that. you know, it's, that's the thing. It's like whenever uh, I talk about that work, using words, it's always like, God, it just sounds like nothing happens. <laughs> like, I just, <laughs> sing this one song but that is what I do do you know what I mean we just have one song so um, I worked out recently actually that not including the festival this year but we've done that show for something like 55 56 hours um, of one song which is kind of psychotic actually mm. but but it's starting to resemble because the the version of so during the performance you are you're singing the song, but you're also singing over or sure, with yeah. or under a, a, a recording of Garland's is it final public yeah, it was performance? The last, the last time she was recorded singing "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," which is itself a kind of recording of a whole lifetime of performances of oh, that I mean, song. It's, it's you know, it's she died like um, a few months after that Copenhagen performance, um, and if you know, in some books there's pictures of her. Um, and she looks, the last few years of her life, she just looked so old and frail and tiny. Um, but you, if you listen to the recording of the, that last time, and then I showed you a picture of her, of how she looked in that concert, you can understand that that voice came out of that body. Um, and she'd sang that song her entire life, you know. Um, and the, within that song... And it's in The Wizard of Oz and everybody knows The Wizard of Oz and everybody has... People really connect to that film and the um, fairy tale of it and then don't know who did, you know, mm-hmm. things about Judy Garland. Um, so, you know, culturally, it's like one of the most iconic... That's an overused word, but absolutely, genuinely iconic films and characters and she um, sings one of the most well-known songs in the world. So in the in the show, this or in the performance, I mean I saw it during the fringe run last year. Had you seen it before? I don't think I had. No. I don't think I had. That's become a really bad habit is when I see um I've started keeping notes. <laughs> it's a good thing to do, yeah. I don't know, I can't remember everything I see. When I saw it at the fringe, it had and I don't know whether this setup has been replicated anywhere else apart from the Edinburgh Festival, is that you had this incredibly intense, focused performance happening at the centre of the room. So you holding the hand of the person standing opposite you and singing to them and occasionally with them, they would sing back. Well, at the same time, there was this uh, kind of outer circle of people in the room. So there was, there was always this inner intimate performance and this outer performance, which was outer audience, which had a slightly different sense of attachment to what was going yeah. on. Yeah. 
but also because it was the fringe, like it's to do with the time and economics. Not everyone in the room got a chance to get yeah. to get to stand with you face to face. Was that a response to just like the pragmatics of the situation? Were you conscious of how that dynamic could play out? Were people like because I think the night I was there, there was a little bit of kind of very polite middle class jostling of people like yeah, yeah. There does there does get to be that. Uh, feeling and when you know what what made Edinburgh different was that it was like these hour long slots and and it's usually a durational piece um, because you can only physically you can only have like 12 reps of the song in an hour um, and that is kind of pushing it that's like if someone if the doors open and someone just goes bang straight up to me and people you know people do once people kind of got uh, or someone that knew the piece or um, got kind of an idea that that's what was going to happen. So they would, and once, once somebody does it, then people see what the mechanism is. So then they do it. Obviously not everybody wants to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, in the same way that if, uh, you went to see Judy Garland at the time where you go and see like Morrissey, who's like, you know, another person that inspires like, absolute like religious devotion like people just want to touch the hem of his garment and people had that you know it's there are some people that you just want to touch their something of them physically and it's like a, and I'm not suggesting that's what happens with me of course not but um but that's the look but you're mm-hmm. you're inhabiting at least part of the logic of that the yeah idea no of- it's a, some yeah I mean it's there it's symbolic but um if 5,000 people are at your show Morrissey can't touch everybody physically. You know, you have to make the effort to like claw your way to the front (laughs) or be there, you know, super early um, and make that kind of uh, effort, I suppose. But at the same time, you, the performer, whether you're Morrissey or whether you're Garland or whether you're you, standing on the stage have to perform as though that intimate connection is available to everyone. It's to everyone because it's that feeling of, you know, and this would, this happened to me very young, going to see bands that I really loved and having that moment where I was like, it definitely looked at me. That was, you know, and that feeling of it's just, this is just for me. I wonder about the the labour of it, the work of it, both physically, that yeah. for I your mean, voice in terms of the 10, 11, 12 performances, but also the the emotional intensity of 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 the eye contact um, and the 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 presence that you have to that mm-hmm. you that you maintain with each person who steps up, mm-hmm. and then repeating that for twenty four nights or however many it was on in, in the first round of the fringe. As a as a performer, how do you approach that that task? How do you get yourself into the physical and mental space to be able to, to, to perform that kind of show. Yeah. I mean, in Edinburgh, especially those pressures became very, very heightened because it was such a long amount that we were doing it. And, and it was a enormous international audience. So there was no, um, it wasn't a festival where people are already sympathetic and they understand um, performance art and how to kind of operate a one-to-one or and, and performance art is relatively there's not a lot of it at the international no, fe- at no. the Edinburgh Festival at all it's no. a real minority which is why it felt like 
a risk to put it there at that time. But Nick and I were, we had a hunch that it was the right time to put something like that there because there is a commercial appeal. If you put Judy Garland in a poster, that's, Judy Garland is not an underground figure. I mean, like a, it's a yeah. populist. Um, and it was at the Summerhall venue, which is, has a, a really interesting reputation. There's a couple of different absolutely. production houses who are attached to it. Risk-taking so. venue. They've turned the, you know, they've turned the major four into the major five and, you know, people, I, only went to like three things in the festival last year that weren't at Summer Hall. Um, and people really go to that for like cutting edge for whatever that phrase really means. But um, they expect it. It's not, Summer Hall is not going to be white men telling jokes or um, Shakespeare or mime. You know, I'm sure there's lots of good Shakespeare mime comedy dudes, whatever. Um, but but that's, that's not, not what Summer Hall is, is that's not what offering. No, no. So it was a sympathetic uh, venue to be in and we didn't fight very hard for the venue to like get what we were doing or like try and convince them what we were doing like they understood. What I realised very quickly in the time of being there, there was a day that I... Um, spent some time with a friend and all you know and I'm from Edinburgh so there's, there's lots of history for me there there's lots of people for me there but um, I spent some time with a friend one day before the show um, just having lunch and I was like I absolutely can't do that I can't what was wrong <laughs> what 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 did the what did the lunch do to you or give to you that made it harder it to just, do the show it was just um, I just need to be by myself Lee and Sarah and I enjoy routines. So um, I we are extremely fortunate that the room that we have at Summer Hall, which is the same room this year, is like uh, just a room. It's not a kitted out space at all. It's not a performance space. So we just put a padlock on that door and have that room. Be so that's your room. space again? Yeah, yeah, nobody else is in it. So it meant that I could be in that room for as long as, you know, a big part of how I kind of drop into the place of doing that show is that I spend a really long time doing my hair and makeup. Um, and what happens as well is that because the because this piece is really minimal, like there's no set, there's a PA, Lee and Sarah have got the gear that they use to make the sound I have a microphone and the computer that plays the song. Other than that, it's what I'm wearing. Um, other than that, it's like my selection of drinks for various needs. Um, and the whole of the work is the connection that I'm having with this person and the sound in the room. That's the whole of the work. And that's very minimal. But what happens is that when something becomes so minimal, it, the complexities just like turn and turn and turn. Um, and of course, you know, like looking into somebody's eyes for like a minute, two, three, four, five, out with being a baby or being a, some, you know, your lover, who do you keep that eye contact with? You don't. So there's like a maternal slant to it and a very intimate kind of 
uh, tender slant to it, but depend. But you know, people, whoever is standing in front of me is bringing me the whole of their experience, and I have to manage the whole of their experience um, very quickly. I know how to manage it when someone starts to cry, and I know how to manage it if someone looks a bit like, oh, go on then, like prove something. Mm-hmm. Which you know, which happened in Edinburgh. There was definitely like, you know, is this the emperor's new clothes kind of thing? Because there was kind of some hype around it. And sometimes people will go because they want to be unimpressed. You know, um, however somebody responds, I have probably seen it. There was a woman in Belgium who came up. Uh, as she came up, she took her top off, <laughs> and. Uh, me and Nick were just like, fucking, yes, yes, let her take her top off, do it, do it. In Brighton, just there, um, someone came up holding their, like, two-year-old child. I saw pictures of that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you should you should say that this, the, the audience member in Belgium took their shirt off. Because I was going to ask you if you'd heard the story about the one of the people who took part in um, Abramovich as the artist's present. And she was huckled away, right? Yeah, so it was... Yeah. so. You know, the two of them are sat opposite this this table. I can't remember if it was maybe the stage in the work where they'd taken the table away. And uh, the audience member, the woman, took off her, her dress and was naked underneath and afterwards was interviewed as saying that she felt she wanted to give something. She wanted exactly. to give something back. Exactly. That's her response. That's her physical and emotional response to that work. Um, and I spoke to the woman in Belgium who did that and she was like, I just want you to like join you in some way in so I guess that's, that's what's interesting to me is that in that in the artist is present whether it's because of how the space was set up and the, the way security had been told to handle audience members regardless of almost what the artist wanted there was no way for the for the audience members to contribute whereas in I could go on singing it feels as though you haven't as an audience member you have no choice but to contribute in some way, without being forced to like yeah, actively yeah. take part and, and yeah. um, but that you can't just um, sit there blankly no. or stand there blankly. No. It's too exposing, or at least it was again for me. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes that can be what puts people off of taking part is that they feel that they're going to be exposed in some way. And whether you want to, whether that feels like a, or you don't, I mean, that's not an experience, but if that, um, trepidation is there I know there's been times with work or in and in lots of other bits of life where it's been like oh, I'm really scared to do this I'm really scared to do this I'm really scared to do this oh, fuck I wish I'd done it now it's over um, but something there's like social fear and anxiety and stuff but what I try and impart to people when because there's a good minute where I'm just holding eye contact before I start singing. So that's my establishing. <laughs> Those are my establishing seconds. Like I am very, very hyper aware of where everyone is while never taking my eyes off this person. Um, and that's a commitment that I made to, to, to working out a way of doing that. The thing about doing that is that there's never a second off do you know like there's not a moment where I'm like uh, I can like let it drop 
So we've got seven hour slots and three three hours, which, um, yeah, is like, you know, if we went back to do the same thing, why would you go back and do the same thing? So if you have, if you buy a ticket for the durational one, you'll be able to come and go. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You can stay for as long as you want. And that's lovely because it's so, and I'm glad that the summer hall and, and you and Nick have been able to work it out because it's so counter to the usual yeah. 45 minutes of, like 45 minute slice of art onto the next slice of art. Yeah. Yeah. And because the durational, because of the hours, um, people, people come really fast. Um, and in the durational, so in Brighton, um, last month when we did uh, three, four hours, um, there's periods in that where there might be five minutes where no one's there and there's, I can like stretch and like uh, just have a fucking minute in between things. But then there'll be like, um, then there'll be sections of like three or four hours where people just come at me really hard. Um, and then there'll be like a bit of, a bit of a breather in it. Um, and then I can kind of just like, you know, re, you very, very quickly reset in my mind a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's all, you know, in the kind of durational versions, there's always this moment where I'm like, does this end? Like, is this, <laughs> so do you, is this the whole of my existence forever? Could be. I Could Go On Singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow appears at Summer Hall during the 2017 Edinburgh Fringe, both as an hour-long show and as a durational piece. Check the Fringe programme for details. For more episodes of this podcast series and information on what else I get up to, why not check out my website, stevegreer.org. Thanks for listening.